This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. This week, it's all about new things. In fact, a lot of you listening are probably new to this podcast and checking it out for the first time. The podcast itself actually isn't new. We've been doing it, I think, for just under four years now. But so far, it has only been for clients of State Street. I do this pretty much weekly, with the occasional week off now and again. And so far, we've done something like 170 episodes. But what's new about it is that we're very happy to say we're now able to publish it to the general public, a public audience on all the major streaming platforms. So for those of you joining us for the first time that way, welcome, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, especially for you new listeners, we need to give a bit of background here. State Street Global Markets has been providing research to our clients for more than two decades, so really nothing new there. From day one, we've always leveraged long-standing relationships that we've had with the academic community that we put towards building unique fact-based indicators capturing things like investor sentiment, market risk parameters, fundamental trends, and narratives and tone in the financial media. These inform our research and they help differentiate us from our competitors. And trust me, you are going to be hearing a lot about those indicators in coming episodes of this podcast. Now, today, we're going to focus on indicators that we produce on institutional investor sentiment. And the history on these indicators actually does go back a long way to the late 1990s. So again, this is not necessarily a completely new concept. Using these indicators, we've been able over that time to capture the flow and positioning of institutional investors in equity, fixed income, currency, and commodity-linked asset markets, all derived from our monitoring of anonymized, aggregated post-trade data seen across more than $35 trillion in assets under custody and administration at State Street. But what is new about the indicators, and what we're going to talk about with my guest today, are some aggregations, some bottom-up aggregations of these indicators that now, along with the podcast, we can actually talk about publicly and release to you and talk about really to anyone, not just the clients of State Street. And so after all of that, to roll this out, we come to my guest today, Will Kinlaw. Will is the global head of research for State Street Global Markets. He's been with the firm for even longer than my nearly, gosh, 14 years And he's overseen everything related to our research for the last two years or so. And he previously worked for years as part of the team who helped to construct and produce all of these unique indicators that I just mentioned. What's also new is that this is Will's debut appearance on our podcast, and it's a conversation I'm very, very excited to have with him. So Will, welcome to you. Thanks so much. Been a longtime listener. It's great to be here for the inaugural <laughs> public episode. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, okay, well, the, the preamble is out of the way. I've hopefully given people a sense of what we're doing here, what's to come. And it's a really good coincidence, actually, that we're publicly relaunching this podcast just a few weeks after we also launched a new set of indicators uh, that we hope will find a foothold in the market mindset. These, of course, are our institutional investor indicators, or three eyes. Can you walk us through these and and what we're now going to be putting out there in the public domain every month? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. Absolutely. And I I think it helps to start with a a little bit of context of of why we do this. Uh, You know, for for years, our clients at State Street have been asking us to provide them with insight. You know, they say, Mm -hmm. look, you've got 
all this data. You got our data, you, your housing data for, for literally trillions and trillions of dollars in institutional assets. Now at, a, at an aggregated and kind of anonymized level, what can you tell us that's interesting about markets? Yeah. How can you help us improve our process, improve our performance? So uh, we've always sought to, to do that uh, to the best of our ability. And uh, many years ago, we, we actually launched something called the State Street Investor Confidence Index. And um, it, it, it was an interesting tool. I mean, it was basically out there to try to measure the looking across all the holdings and these trillions of dollars of custodial assets, you know, how risk averse or risk seeking are investors. Um, we did get a lot of feedback over the years. It might have been a little bit too complex and kind of mm. how it was designed. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what was going on under the hood. Uh, but despite that, it actually had great traction. Uh, and, and what clients told us and what media outlets told us was, Look, there's not a lot of information out there about what institutional <laughs> investors are doing. You know, it's yeah. it's kind of a gap. Um, they've got you've got surveys, right? Uh, but those are small yeah. samples, and obviously, we all know people are a little biased sometimes in how they respond to surveys. You can just see that from some of the catastrophic failures of presidential polls over the years, right? So, uh -huh. so how can we really get like a fact-based view of what this uh, community of, of important investors is doing? And that's what led us down this path. And what we're really excited to be doing now, uh, collating all this feedback and, and thinking about our next step is how can we really upgrade and improve upon what we did years ago uh, with the Investor Confidence Index? And, and that's what we're doing with the three I's. So, so what are they? Um, the first one is the uh, Institutional Investor Holdings Indicator. Quite simply, that looks across all this data and gives you the pie chart, basically, you know, the, the portfolio weights to right. stocks, bonds, and cash. So this is really high level. But as you well know, Tim, that simple piece of information actually tells you a lot about how investors are looking at markets, right? If they're, yeah. if they're yeah. underweight equities, they're selling equities, they're stockpiling cash, that tells you they're, they're probably more bearish on equities than, than they yeah. were. Uh, if they're moving out of longer term fixed income into cash, that probably tells you they have a view that you know, interest rate rates might, might be going up and might hurt the long end of the curve. Yep. Excuse me. So this this really simple piece of information on the, on the holdings perspective can be helpful. The, the second uh, indicator is called the risk appetite indicator. And we're going to talk more about this later. And I'm, I'm also hopeful you're going to you're going to share what you're seeing now, Tim, because I, I know you yeah. and your team follow this very closely. But this one is not about the current position like the holdings indicator. This one is about the direction of travel. Uh, it's about the flow. And specifically what it does, it's a score from negative one to one. So it's very simple. Mm. Uh, but underneath that very simple score, uh, it's looking at 22 different dimensions of risk taking. And we'll talk more about that. But there are many ways investors can take risks and different asset classes. And this looks across all of that and gives you this simple score. So anything between zero and one uh, indicates increasing degrees of risk seeking flow and anything from zero to negative one indicates increasing degrees of risk averse flow. So this is, you know, our investors, wherever their starting point is, uh, are they moving toward a more risk averse or kind of a more risk, you know, risk seeking uh, position? So yeah. That's the second one. Uh, the third one's a little bit different. Um, the third one looks at carbon exposure and carbon is increasingly important to many of our clients. And obviously, you know, our clients uh, have all different sorts of objectives, all different views on climate change and how to address that in their portfolio. Um, we're not here to tell anyone what they should be doing, but they are looking for facts because yeah. whatever your views, you know, carbon's a risk factor. 
Um, it's we see now in the news, we see that the EU has approved a, a carbon tax on imports, right? And, mm -hmm. and th this is real, right? This hits the bottom line. So investors are curious, you know, how are institutional investors positioning around this risk? Are they increasing their exposure, decreasing it? How efficiently do their portfolios leverage carbon? Uh, if the carbon exposure is changing, what's driving that? Uh, so what we're trying to do with the with the carbon indicator, which is which is annual, uh, you know, carbon yep. exposure doesn't move overnight, uh, so it's an <laughs> annual measure. But we're trying to give a little bit of a drill down, a little bit of transparency there. Um, the other two me measures that I mentioned will be will be monthly, and obviously there's you know there's a lot that happens in in markets with holdings and flows, so we wanted to update that more frequently. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a of a sense of what we're doing with the with the three eyes. Yeah, and I wanted to dig a bit deeper on the two areas that we're talking about here, investor behavior or institutional investor sentiment and and carbon or for, I guess, a, a catch-all term, ESG. You know, this is, this is really what we're getting at. And, and you're absolutely right. In Europe especially, the appetite for content related to this and, and how it affects portfolios and how managers are supposed to, to manage risk around exposure to ESG is super important. And all this work, as I mentioned in the preamble, we have these ties to academia. I remember when I joined State Street, this was the, the major selling point, the research, and especially how it was grounded in peer-reviewed, well-established work by really leaders in their field that we work with on this. And for people who know our research, this is all second nature. We've, we've done these sorts of introductions, and they meet with our research partners regularly, and so our, our existing clients know about this, but the ones maybe listening to this podcast for the first time don't. And so I wanted to see if you could dive in a little bit to the history of those partnerships. What have we kind of built over the years that allows us to bring this type of unique information to the market? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think fundamentally, you know, what we're trying to do at the end of the day is help our clients improve performance, right? They, we yep. need to help them beat their benchmarks. That's what we're here for. Uh, many of them are investment managers, hedge funds. Um, some of them are asset owners that, that have some self-managed capabilities uh, in-house. Uh, and, and our view is there's two ways, fundamentally, you can do that. Uh, one way you can outperform is you can have better information. Uh, mm. and, and another way you can outperform is you can have better research, better tools and analytics to convert data into ideas and into information and into insight. Um, so we really try to tackle both of those two tenets. Um, yeah. On the data side, I, you know, we're going to talk more. We, we've talked a little bit about what we're doing with the, with the three eyes, uh, but we've sought out all sorts of interesting data sets inside State Street, outside State Street. Uh, what could give our clients an edge? Yeah. Uh, in the investment process. So, so data is obviously is a, is a big piece of it. But the, the research piece, I think, is equally important because, you know, data alone is not insight, right? Data doesn't tell you what to buy and sell. Um, data doesn't necessarily tell you, you know, where the risk is in your portfolio. It, it requires a good framework, good model, good interpretation, both uh, quantitative tools, but also just good old-fashioned judgment, right? To, to understand how to look at that data and, and interpret it. So to, to really uh, push that in, that's where we've uh, forged these partnerships. Um, we started doing this in the late 90s uh, and, and now have built up a, a pool of, of, uh, of eight academic partners at, at Harvard, uh, Boston College, and MIT. And what they're really doing is helping us think of uh, frameworks and better ways to analyze the data to create signals to create indicators that are really useful to investors um, and, and our clients, obviously. And we, we've tried to select them pretty carefully. Mm. You know, frankly, there's a, a lot of academic research is um, kind of descriptive. Yeah. There's that old saying that, that academia too often is just 
scratching deeper and deeper into the surface of things, right? It's, <laughs> it's not it's not obvious. You read a lot of these papers, and it's like, okay, what do I actually do uh, off the back of this, or is it just describing some you know theory that doesn't really help yeah. you with, with a portfolio? So we've we've chosen carefully um, our panel of academics to be really curious about the real world kind of you know practical aspects of investing. Uh, they talk to our clients. Many of them serve on boards at, at investment firms. Some of them actually manage assets themselves. Um, so, so really trying to bridge that divide between the, the academic theory and what are the latest ideas coming out of academia and, you know, how do we actually make that practical uh, for our yeah. clients? And that's, that's what we brought to the, the, the research we've done in our custodial data and, and these indicators. Yeah. And let's think about then the holdings and risk appetite indicators specifically and, and finish here. Um, can you talk about why do people, why should people care about these? You know, what, what is it about institutional investor flows and positions specifically that offer some of that edge or that information for clients who look at them? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really important. And it's, it's funny. It's, it's one of these things that in our industry, when we talk to people, it's just so obvious why it's important and we kind of forget it's like, it's like <laughs> breathing. Right. But yeah. to, to those that don't think about it, it's, it's worth really uh, go going through that a little bit. Um, look, the, the simplest way to answer what, why is this important is because these investors are really big. They're really, really big. Um, as a yeah. group, uh, they're, they're huge and they tend to move uh, together. Sometimes they tend to be persistent in their flows. Uh, in their trading activity. And what that means is when you have really big investors who, when they trade, demand liquidity, and as a group moving in a certain direction, say selling equities or, um, I don't know, uh, buying the euro, right? Whatever it is, that can put pressure on markets and on prices. So that persistent yeah. large flow demanding liquidity can can move markets. And that that's why it's it's so important to, to understand. And I know we'll get into mm. some of the, the proof points. Um, the way I think about it is, is, is almost like if, if you're a pilot, right? Before a pilot takes off uh, from the runway, one of the things they check is the winds aloft. Uh, do they have mm. a headwind or do they have a tailwind? And, and that affects how long it's going to take them to get there. It might affect the route that they take. Um, this is the same idea, right? There, there are headwinds and tailwinds from these very large set of, of real money institutions. And these indicators give a sense of, of what those are. Yeah, and I think certainly it's something we use. And I think the current picture is you know very very interesting because as you've talked about the behavior is is very persistent um you know right now we have a lot of things that we are worried about and it's interesting to look at these indicators you know particularly the the flow side of things where you know when it comes to worries you have the prospect of a recession in the US maybe elsewhere you have banking sector stresses and what's interesting just to kind of put some um, context and how we use these flows and positioning metrics in our thinking and, and coming up with strategies. Um, you know, flows have been risk averse really since March, since the the collapse of SVB and and other banks, and you know, then leading into Credit Suisse. And what we've seen since then is one of the most pronounced periods of risk reduction since the financial crisis back in two thousand eight. And I guess there is a saving grace here, which is that. Positions now, when you look at the holdings of institutional investors, they now are quite underweight. That allocation to cash is has been raised, certainly. Um, but it, it's interesting that this is very different than, say, the beginning of last year when markets started to correct. Institutions then were overweight risk. Now, if anything, they're kind of underinvested, which may make sense given 
some of the action you're seeing in price just over the last couple of weeks. We've had earnings hold up relatively well. You have these big tech companies like NVIDIA, which are just blowing the lights out when it comes to earnings. And that, mm-hmm. that, that is a bit of a disconnect right now. But it does make sense when you consider just in the past how much institutional risk reduction there is and that they are now potentially underinvested. So I think it's a, it's a nice real-world application to some of the things that you've talked about in terms of what institutions have done to really drive that. So you're saying from uh, from the duration, uh, the the length of the period they've been risk averse is the longest since since 2008, since the financial crisis. It's on a par, yeah. And it, the, the position risk is not quite as reduced as it was then. That was just you know run for the hills. Everything is underweight, mm-hmm. and the behavior persisted for. A couple of months, I would say, before you got a policy response. And that often is what we historically have looked for in thinking about these indicators is a policy response from fiscal authorities or central banks. And then risk appetite starts to improve, and especially so when positioning is as underweight as it was. But yeah, it's it's there are a few parallels to mm. what we currently see. The GFC is one of them. You had kind of the period, the first month where COVID was really spreading and markets were in free fall. That was a comparable period. There were other things. Well, coincidentally enough, the last time the US went through a a big debt ceiling crisis in 2011, that was also when you saw institutions behaving in similar fashion for as long as they currently are on the risk reduction path. That was another parallel where, again, positioning got to that point. This time around, it's it's quite different. And I think the message is really interesting because you're seeing this. I guess we did have a correction in markets last year, and it was deep. And it was across both fixed income and equity markets. I mean, risk parity had probably about as rough a ride as you, you could take because rates yeah. were rising, and that, that hurt everything. And now you have investors behaving like that's happening again. And so it's, it's something, I think, to be very, very mindful of. So these are not not normal times through the lens of of institutional behavior. For and sure, not d- digging into that. Um, I, I mentioned earlier these twenty two kind of dimensions of risk taking under the risk yeah. appetite index. I know you and your team follow those components very closely because sometimes they tell a richer story in terms of what's going on. What yeah. what what are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, some things are pretty straightforward, right? At a very high level, the allocations to equities continue to drop and those for cash are picking up. And that feeds into the aggregate pessimism that we see in flows. And currency and commodity-linked flows, those are also still very weak, especially commodities. I think it's every single one of the factors we track right now is risk-averse. You also have flows into U.S. treasuries, which are also very strong. And so institutions are definitely expressing pessimism. I think through the lens of economic activity and seemingly the expectation is that a recession is on the cards and, and that's what they're, they're tracking. And that's also clear in some of our equity flows where you see those most aligned with the business cycle seeing selling as well. But what's really interesting is for as many negative signals as there are, and make no mistake, the net output from the flow signal is still quite negative. Actually, the last couple of weeks, there has been some thawing, especially within pockets of the equity market. Overall, cyclical flows are not strong, but they're also not quite as negative as they were in recent months. And actually, investors seem to be getting sucked into the rally in tech stocks, especially that we've seen over recent weeks. So the message is still one of risk aversion, but it's perhaps one where we've seen the greatest expression of pessimism, especially now that positions have adjusted to reflect that. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I wanted to p- push a little bit on that <clears throat> point about yeah. cash holdings. You know, there's there's a lot of um, media about 
and obviously a lot of our clients are saying, look, you know, cash is now giving this really attractive yield. It's kind of, it's kind of an alternative now. It's a viable alternative. Mm. Um, we, we see this rise in cash holdings. Where, where do you see this going? What are the paths we could take in the next six, 12 months? Yeah, I'm actually not convinced we're going to see a big move away from cash yet. And I think first and foremost, you know, the flow component we've talked about with these new indicators would suggest the persistence means you'll continue to see further risk reduction. So you kind of have to respect that. And even though institutional holdings have adjusted, um, I think there are a lot of reasons to, to still be invested in cash. We think a recession is, is becoming more likely. We have a, another indicator of recession probability. We'll probably talk about that on a future episode. Um, so that is typically when you do see cash holdings rise in this metric is when economies start to enter recession. And then there's yield. Um, it's not convincing to me that the Fed is going to turn tail and cut rates. And so... Cash is very much something on the investor mindset as far as maintaining that allocation. Rates, I think, are likely to stay higher in the front end, certainly for the rest of this year. And I think cash has a much bigger part to play in investor portfolios than it certainly has done the last you know, 12 or 13 years, certainly during the, the era of zero rates, even though economies were often struggling then. Um, so I think it's certainly something to watch in cash holdings. I'm guessing will probably stay high, maybe even get higher for the remainder of this year, because we don't see Fed cuts coming this year, probably well into next year as well. So certainly something we're going to watch. But Will, I, actually, I'm also conscious that I'm, I'm watching the clock a little bit. And I think we are starting to run up against time for what we, you know, for how long we usually go on. Um, but for our first episode, I think, look, I think we've kind of nailed it. But at the same time, <laughs> we don't want to overstay our welcome. Of course, so, of course. Yeah. I want to be you. back. I want to be, yeah. be invited back. So Exactly. <laughs> But listen, thanks to all of you for listening. Will, thanks for being on this first public edition of this podcast. You especially are one of the people, along with a lot of other listeners, who has been pushing for it to get out there into the broader world. We have done that. So thanks to you. Thanks to all of you who have joined us. And we appreciate you listening. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication, 
Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.